from the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. A quick note about this installment. This interview was recorded in April 2018, so you're going to hear references to two events that were happening at the time. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress and a series of protests that took place at DePaul University in response to a string of racist and homophobic incidents that took place both on and off campus. Now, let's get to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Adrienne Russell. She's the Mary Laird Wood Professor of Journalism and the Environment at the University of Washington. Her research and teaching focus on the changing field of journalism and the intersection of emerging technologies and pressing social problems. In her latest book, Journalism as Activism, Recoding Media Power, she asks how these kinds of changes can foster innovation and new practices and values that can bolster democratic and participatory publics. I really thought that, and I found that, looking at the way activists are using media in the service of public interest is a really interesting way to find ideas about what might best serve the public from people who are actually creating media with that intent. Adrian Russell, welcome to the podcast. So I want to start with the title of your book, uh, Journalism as Activism, and that seems kind of destined to maybe raise the hackles of some traditional journalists to say, well, no, journalists can't be activists. That's that's wrong. That You can't do that. Um, those two things need to be separated. So I wonder if you could explain what that connection is meant to signal for you. Sure, sure. So the title really reflects on two simultaneous phenomenon that I've found that are kind of pervasive in the current media environment. One is that activists are increasingly taking on the role of journalists, so they're not relying on mainstream journalism. They're creating their own media by doing things like setting up media centers, live streaming protests, uh, creating their own Twitter feeds, and, and sort of getting their message out to their supporters as well as the larger publics on their own. Now, at the same time, journalists, at least the very good ones, are re-examining the norms of professional journalism that dictate that they uh, remain neutral or distant from the subjects that they're covering. And they're increasingly, I've found, taking a more engaged stance to be activists on behalf of facts. So we're living in in a media landscape today that is just riddled with uh, untruths, uh, sort of misinformation. And it has become increasingly the role of journalists to suss out what exactly is a fact, what is the truth of the situation. And that truth isn't always coming from the top-down sources that have traditionally been thought of as bureaucratically credible. So... um, that is essentially what the essence of the title is about. And, you know, I can give you some examples. We can talk more of that yeah. about that if you like. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the, the kind of struggles that traditional journalism has had to go, go through in the last year or so or year and a half, two years, as Trump and his, his assault on the media has kind of taken hold, you know, even whether or not they could call a lie, a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that seemed like taking a stand. And so it seems like, as you're saying, that that journalists have had to sort of grapple with being kind of, as you said, activists for facts and the truth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would love to hear a couple examples. If- sure. Well, when I wrote the book, um, the book came out in October of 2016 in the U.S., so right before the election. 
And uh, a lot of the examples that I highlighted in the book of journalists who were acting on behalf of facts, uh, who were advocating on behalf of facts, were uh, kind of outliers. There were people who, um, like, for example, Glenn Greenwald, who was a uh, considered an opinion writer um, for The Guardian, but also headed up the um, the coverage of the leaks, the NSA leaks, and, and partnered very closely with Edward Snowden to get those that information and those leaks to the public. Um, so he's an example of somebody that you know, there's been a lot of contention around his role as a journalist. Uh, a lot of mainstream traditional journalists would say he's not, in fact, a journalist, but an advocate. Um, but what has happened since uh, the Trump election and his sort of declared war on the press is that a lot of uh, mainstream journalists have engaged in a sort of self-reflection about how how they can uh, do their work in this environment of like intense lack of transparency. And a lot of this work um, of finding out what's going on in the White House right now, for example, is is happening through the process of uh, leaks and through the process of um, tapping into people who are willing to stick their neck out and uh, and report on what's actually going on inside the White House since a lot of traditional press you know, that are covering the White House have been ejected from White House press meetings and these sorts of things. So uh, the phenomenon of journalists being activists on behalf of facts has really spread to the mainstream more in the last 18 months. And, you know, we can take as an example, um, the New York Times uh, and many other outlets have started instead of pointing out in even in headlines when uh, members of the administration are saying something that's not true. So one recent, or I guess it's not that recent, but one example was when Trump misstated or lied about the size of the crowd at his inauguration. The headline was something to the extent of Trump lies about the size of the crowd at the inauguration. And they were very clear and reflective about the use of the term lie. They know that that's not something to be thrown around lightly, especially not when you're talking about the president of the United States. But they also felt that it was their job to uh, let the public know that this was, in fact, a documented untruth. It doesn't seem like their role has necessarily changed as much as they are now put in the position of having to defend their role. I'm wondering now if we could talk a little bit about the other side of the equation and how activists are sort of taking on the, the mantle of, of journalism in, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, that is sort of what led me to uh, this investigation. I was really in writing about journalism and doing research about journalism. I was really for, you know, the last 15 or so years, I I have been really struck by the innovative ways that activists like take on the project of uh, using technology in order to report on what's going on and the issues that they're concerned about. They've um, been doing incredible work in fact checking and unhinging themselves from having to rely on mainstream traditional media to get their message out. And a lot of, um, you know, the work on journalism and journalism scholarship and journalism research has really been focused, um, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s, on trying to figure out a path towards a new business model in journalism and less about a new model that would serve the public interest in a more reliable and stronger way. And so I really thought that and I found that looking at the way 
activists are using media in the service of public interest is a really interesting way to find ideas about what might best serve the public from people who are actually creating media with that intent. Mm -hmm. What are some things that activists are doing with new media tools that are, are pushing the boundaries a little bit? Well, I mean, there's loads of examples. One that, you know, comes most obviously to mind is something like um, when there is a protest and traditionally activists would have to rely on uh, mainstream media and maybe the mainstream media would not be sympathetic or even bother to cover the issues that are being protested. Uh, now, most protests uh, have live streamers who actually take, you know, t- t- video what's going on and it goes automatically online so that, uh, you know, people can see what's going on in that space. And, you know, maybe they can see that not everybody's smashing in Starbucks windows or maybe they can see that it's a peaceful protest or, um, you know, we can use recent events here mm-hmm. on campus at yeah. DePauw as an example where, uh, you know, students who were uh, being closed out of a conversation about recent uh, hate speech on campus uh, interrupted a public speech in order to get their voice into the media coverage of what was what is going on on campus. Hmm. Um, and these sorts of um, interruptions and these sort of calculated ways that activists are inserting their voices into the discourse around issues is really powerful. Another example is technologists are increasingly working with journalists to create tools to make it safer to uh, communicate with sources, to get leaked information. And um, in an era where there's mass surveillance both by the government and commercial entities, this is a really big step in ensuring the free flow of information and, um, you know, sort of Uh, pushing towards transparency without the fear of reprisal from the government or other Mm -hmm. other entities that don't want this information to be out there. You talk about in the book of this kind of like new media vanguard and and issues about media competence, which I really like because it seems to get us away from a kind of traditional kind of media literacy, which seems to be about learning what you're watching. Right. But there's this other thing involved here, which and I wonder if you could talk more about what you mean by the new media vanguard and then this concept of media competence. Sure, sure. So the new media vanguard uh, really uh, sort of gets at this idea that I just mentioned that up until recently, it was, uh, you know, some outliers that were kind of turning and uh, looking at the traditions of journalism and questioning whether you know, balance and objectivity were truly the path towards uh, creating journalism that is in the public interest. Uh, so they're the sort of leaders in both adopting tools, uh, reassessing values and practices of journalism that are uh, taking us forward into an era of journalism that is better adapted to the current technological and political landscape. And the media vanguard are almost exclusively super media competent. And that could be 
you know, just an everyday person who happens to be super savvy on Twitter or or a blogger that has a great voice that catches on and people, you know, turn to to get a new perspective on a particular issue. Or it could be somebody, you know, that is, you know, building new tools than, you know, that are being adopted by other activists. But the the idea of competence is, you know, oftentimes it comes with uh, training and money and resources for technology, but sometimes it comes from, you know, people just being dedicated and skilled at uh, navigating the existing technology. Uh, and so there is a sort of potential of of uh, power dynamic shifting mm-hmm. if you consider uh, media competence as one of the factors in that you know helps people get their voice out there yeah. Yeah, but, but and it sounds like competence is more than just technical skill I mean it's part of it right? yeah you have to know how to use the the tools technically but it's also is it also a different kind of sensibility or a different kind of understanding of how media power works or? yeah i mean it's it's kind of a combination of both understanding how media power works and understanding in this media landscape that we're in where there's all these overlapping tools and outlets and and ways of communicating understanding the interplay between those mm-hmm. and you know maybe not being an expert at every uh, medium, but knowing how to use one to influence others Mm -hmm. and understanding how, for example, um, if you have a message that is not being uh, covered, how to get that message into a larger sphere of media coverage. Yeah, it's interesting. Just to go back to the events on campus, uh, one of the things I noticed is that when the students first found the the image that was the, the first example or the first instance of of um, of racial slurs on campus and they found uh, you know in the, in this instance um and they found it uh they started sharing it on social media and tagging uh over and over again news outlets and different kinds of news outlets every every outlet they could think of whether it was traditional or non-traditional and they were just tagging each other and trying to spread it which was a a fascinating way of thinking about how do we get this message out we want everyone to know it's not enough to just call the local TV station and say, hey, come down, right? It's about almost like carpet bombing, right? It's just like yeah. this whole, like, we're just going to put it out there and everybody's going to have access to it. Well, and it's an invitation to journalists yeah. to consider their perspectives. I mean, journalists who are covering the recent events here and incidents, I'm sure, would love to have access to students' points of view and to be able to talk to students who are involved in looking forward to reforming the the cultural climate and the political climate of campus. And so that's a perfect and brilliant example of media competence, just the simple act of understanding, um, you know, the perspective of journalists that they, you know, this might catch their eye, but also... Um, reaching out and and um, circulating information among already existing networks mm-hmm. is is a perfect example. It's it's interesting, and I, I guess I want to turn as well to from there to um, the sort of subtitle of your book, which is "Recoding Media Power." And it seems like we're in this interesting moment where, for instance, the students were sharing it among themselves. It was getting out there. It was way past the control of anybody here at the university or any you know. PR organization, 
And yet they were also targeting these sort of traditional outlets who then would take the story. And what, we, what we've seen is that as the more traditional commercial outlets get it, it starts to follow very recognizable patterns. So, you know, they interrupted the speaker mm-hmm. who was a well-known actress and then the story in the news becomes sort of about that. Like, they did this thing, there's this stuff going on campus, but this this person, you know, was interrupted or this person responded this way. And it sort of becomes the story that they think might be more attractive to their audience. Right. right? Yeah. And so there's – I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of recoding power and how it seems to me like it's – we're thinking less about power coming – media power coming from these sort of larger corporations that are – providing us with information and now um, thinking about it coming from the bottom up in in this maybe more pronounced way? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think there's, I want to mention two parts Mm -hmm. to why we might not want to be too optimistic Mm -hmm. about what's happening um, while maintaining some degree of optimism. So for the students, for example, the way that the mainstream press is cycling through the news of what happened, yeah, the the mainstream press, you know, is always going to go towards the narrative that there was a celebrity there and what, you know, mainstream audiences might uh, want to hear about, which is it, it, it sidesteps the issues at hand yeah. and it makes the incidents you know, sort of lose their potential to, uh, you know, move towards uh, changing in the right direction, right? But I think more than that, and kind of more insidious is the ways that if we're relying on social media channels to deliver these student voices, for example, we and we don't understand how attention is sort of controlled on platforms like Facebook, then we don't really know if those messages are showing up in the feeds of, you know, people who, you know, we think they might, or if they're, you know, getting buried because maybe the hate speech was mentioned in the post, or it's, you know, uh, a topic that makes people uncomfortable. The fact is we don't know because the way that algorithms work are proprietary. So we, and, you know, in such a way that even Facebook isn't sure how it organizes its information. Um, And so this leads us to, like, so the idea of recoding media power is meant to both uh, suggest, as you said, bottom-up power, but also uh, question what are the new powerful entities in our these new platforms and how do we engage those to push for more transparency and to push for tools that work the way we want them to work that you know sort of supports society rather than precludes democracy and sort of creates these new mechanisms of of lack of transparency in some ways every every new platform, every new media technology seems to go through this cycle, right? And I think Tim Wu talks about the cycle, right, of from open to closed. And this idea, so, you know, Facebook in some ways become, starts off as this kind of democratizing potential. It's now so big that even its owners don't know really what it does, or, you know, the people who run it. And so it's almost as if you, we're in this constant cycle of building a new platform that opens up possibilities that then get closed down pretty 
quickly once they become commercially viable. And so is this, is this, do you see this as a, a pattern of activists in particular are going to have to keep sort of finding different platforms in different ways? They're going to have to keep moving. Is this a moving target, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about, obviously, all activists, but I think mm-hmm. there's already a lot of activists who don't use Facebook yeah. for, you know, s- security and surveillance reasons. And um, and there's all sorts of, you know, problems with using commercial platforms for activists' yeah. um, uh, endeavors, which I've written a lot about in the book. But, I mean, I think that it, it, the cycle that Tim Wu refers to, which is, you know, the sort of inc- the technologies start off like free and full of potential, and then they get eclipsed by the drive for profit, and they get locked down. Um, you know, I think that last week's uh, testimony by Zuckerberg uh, is a step in the right direction in the sense that more and more we're understanding and sort of challenging and pushing back against the dangers or troubles that come along with mm-hmm. these platforms and questioning it and and exploring options of regulation and insisting on you know certain policies related to these institutions is where we need to go because the question of just moving to another platform that is open and protected and not commercial would be great, but it's not likely going to happen, or at least not in the scale where it's hosting the majority of our public conversation the mm-hmm. way it is now. Yeah, so it's, it'll be sort of naturally marginalized, right? right? And of course, with, with regulating Facebook or, you know, as they're talking about, what do we, is it a monopoly? What do we do? I, I get worried that, well, then we just go back to normal solutions of like, well, let's break up the monopoly and let's make it a bunch of small companies that, that then compete with each other to get bigger. And, you know, it's, it doesn't yeah. seem like it goes anywhere um, unless there's a, a an attempt to, you know, on a policy level, really rethink the role of social media. But I'm not sure we can... Well, you I mean, Europe is instituting new privacy policies in May that I believe that Facebook is going to have to adhere to. And, you know, these are some of the policies include things like making user agreements clear yeah. and opting into data sharing rather than out of data sharing. And, you know, I think these sorts of things, I mean, they're small steps, but they also come along with raising awareness about the, the uh, dangers of, of losing our privacy and the dangers of not knowing um, who's doing what with our data and how it could be harmful to public life and mm-hmm. politics. And so, I mean... The conversation has started in a way that I, you know, haven't seen happen in, you know, at least a decade of, you know, concern Mm -hmm. over privacy issues related to these platforms. So I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Let me ask you, I want want to finish with one last question, which is kind of a big question. You you talk in the book about um, a move, or you talk in the introduction anyway, about a, a shift from thinking about media logics to media sensibilities. So... And, and then I actually want to sort of tie that into this notion of hacktivist sensibilities. So I wonder if you could first um, sort of distinguish for, for me um, between media logics and media sensibilities and what that kind of difference is, and then color it with an, uh, an explanation of hacktivist sensibilities. Sure. So 
media logics are, you know, actually quite a useful way of understanding what media do beyond what their content are. So the it's the idea is that there's like, you know, uh, a way that media gets shaped depending on the type of media that you're dealing with. So like broadcast news, for example, and the logic of talking heads behind a desk interviewing one another, uh, you know, shapes a particular kind of worldview. Mm -hmm. So besides what they're saying, just that form and the logics end up both tailoring the messages we get, but also um, tailoring the way that people imagine having debates or reporting on news, for example. Um, But there's so many, and then you can think about it in terms of like the logic of Twitter, like, you know, 140 characters, you know, getting straight to the point and uh, tagging other people so, you know, they can add into the conversation. And so there's logics in all of these different sorts of media use and media outlets that are that make up the media landscape and so uh, the book just sort of questions whether or not this notion when there's so many logics if that is even a useful way of looking at it anymore um because really they're so diverse that it's not a logic anymore it's really just a bunch of different ways of doing things that are coming together so sensibilities speaks more to a sort of idea that uh that an understanding of the flow and the feeling and the um norms and values that are inherent in certain uh mediums and how there are different sensibilities for different ways of engaging and using media. Um, And it's just a, you know, sort of a suggested way that researchers might uh, look at the media environment and understand the different dimensions of what's actually going on. Hacktivist sensibility is related but kind of distinct in that it's my way of thinking through this idea uh, that we are all in some ways, much more interactive with our media, whether or not the media wants us to be. Mm-hmm. So um, hacktivist sensibility can be anything from, a, uh, you know, a highly skilled uh, journalist who decides to break from the traditions of journalism to uh, get to the heart of a story because getting at the truth matters more than... Uh, giving the appearance of objectivity. Two, if we get back to your students, uh, it was a hacktivist sensibility that caused them to bust into the closed Mm -hmm. press conference and tell the journalists, we want to tell you our perspective. We want to tell you what what we think is going on and what we think is important about the recent events on campus. This is a, you know, this is a sort of talking back to media or sort of inserting uh, their voice in media that in some ways speaks to the sensibility of our media environment today. We used to open the New York Times and say, okay, this is what truth is. This is what, um, you know, the fact of the matter is without sort of checking in um, with our own experiences and what we know to be true. 
are thinking about what might not be included in those experiences. Now we're much more uh, adept at, uh, you know, sort of critiquing and weighing in and injecting our own voices into media. And this can be a good thing in the case of students who are getting ignored and have ideas Mm -hmm. about how they want their community to improve. It can be bad when everybody thinks that their facts are true facts, um, when in fact things are getting made up and everybody feels that if it feels right to them, then it must be true. So it's, again, a a slippery slope, but we're in the middle of sorting this all out. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the things that have the potential to work very well for democracy and the things that have the potential and are, in fact, undercutting our ability to act as democratic societies. So I was thinking about another example that I think we talked about earlier um, with some students and the idea of like we can use tools so the students can break in Mm And that's kind of an old style, right? I'm gonna, we're going yeah. to take over the traditional media here and just overwhelm them. And they're going to have to cover us. But then there's also this like, okay, so we have this story now. And we don't like the way this story was written. We think this story leaves a lot out. And so I've seen all these things online now where someone can just like start a blog or even put it up on Facebook or whatever they want to do and start annotating, citing, and like, as you said, critiquing the news almost in real time. Right. Yeah. And the tools are available to do that. And it seems like that's a kind of part of that hacktivist sensibility yeah. right, of saying, I'm going to engage this in a way that I wasn't able to before. I'm going to break into this. Right. Exactly. In a class just before this, uh, we were talking with students who are at the forefront of trying to figure out what to do on campus and how to sort of not just in terms of media relations, but in terms of, you know, reforming the culture of campus. Mm-hmm. Um and but well, yeah, one of the things that they were brainstorming about was this idea of like annotating every time you see an article that has misinformation or or leaves you know perspectives out, just annotating it and putting it up on a blog, um, uh, because you know frankly they're doing it anyway out of frustration. Mm-hmm. Might as well uh, you know show it to the world and uh, you know and attract the attention of journalists and maybe help put pressure on uh, them to improve the way mm-hmm. that they're covering the situation. But yes, it's exactly that that's like, you know, gets at the spirit of this idea of hacktivist sensibility. And it also seems like it opens up these, uh, we're talking about new media and we're talking about networks, right? And it's not only network, technological networks, but it's also networks of people, right, Mm -hmm. who who are connected through these tools and who can take on different parts of the job. It's not going to all fall on somebody to have to sit down and meticulously go through. Different people can chime in and these new tools allow for these kind of teams of hacktivists, right, to kind of join together and with a cause and do things quickly. Right. And I mean, the fact of the matter is that some people are more comfortable showing up and, Mm -hmm. you know, protesting in person. Some people have technological skills and can lend their support that way. Some people, you know, are great at navigating and, and communicating via social media. So, you know, protesting or engaging in public life doesn't have to come in one form. And there's so many more possibilities today. Um, And, you know, it seems like the students here are really thinking through those possibilities and kind of, you know, have identified sort of endless 
avenues of experimentation and and all of it is super engaging and I think really exciting. Well, Adrian Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to be here. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. My guest today has been Adrian Russell. She's the Mary Laird Wood Professor of Journalism and the Environment at the University of Washington, where her research and teaching focus on the changing field of journalism and the intersection of emerging technologies and pressing social problems. To find out more about Adrian Russell's work, you can visit our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. You can also subscribe to Modern Media on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Modern Media is a production of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. And until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.